Welcome to Retirement Revealed. I'm your host, Jeremy Kyle, and we're here to turn your retirement savings into retirement income. Today, we're talking with Steve Kelly about how to invest in private real estate. I met Steve through his affiliation with MLG Capital. They're a local private uh, real estate investor. We'll learn more about that. Uh, you're going to learn a lot from Steve, just the different ways you can invest in private real estate. This is Retirement Revealed, where Jeremy Kyle and his guests guide you towards making smarter retirement, investment, and tax planning decisions. Steve, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Jeremy. Great to be here. Thanks yeah. for having me. Glad you can make it through. We're live in studio, as you might be able to tell if you're watching on the video. And I went through and put together just a lot of different kind of ideas, things that we want to go through. But I, I guess really the first one is just tell me, why would anybody actually invest in real estate? Yeah, that's a great question. When you take kind of a step back of it, you think about the whole investor portfolio, as I'm sure you do with lots of your clients, there's stocks, there's bonds, and really there's been a huge growth in this area of alternative investments. And it's a, a broad category that includes asset classes like private equity, venture capital, private real estate, what we do. And it's starting to become a more popular piece for advisors to have access to and individual investors to add to their portfolio. Some of the main reasons for that are it's generally less volatile than the stock market. Um, the private markets don't get traded on a you know second by second basis. They're not valued as quickly as the public markets. So that's usually seen as a nice hedge against some of the volatility that might be happening in the public markets. Yeah. And I'd say a lot of people kind of think of real estate in two ways. Either they're thinking of, I go out and buy a duplex, I'm investing, I'm doing it myself, or I buy something called a real estate investment trust, you know, publicly traded probably that they're thinking of, but there's a whole gamut in between. Can you just share with us what are some different ways somebody could invest in real estate? Absolutely. There's a lot of different ways. And you mentioned some of the main ones, you know, when you think about public options, there's publicly traded REITs. Those are public entities that in turn, invest in real estate assets. And those can be just as volatile as any other stock. And sometimes when you look at it, their trading price could be different than the net asset value or the value of the underlying properties. Um, they could be trading either higher or lower than the assets might be worth. It's still based on the market's perception of those assets' values, not necessarily what they would transact at in a private market space. So that's one option. Another option could be some of the direct self-ownership components that you mentioned, going out, buying a single family rental, a duplex, any other types of single triple net asset type properties where you're going to be a little bit more in control. You're going to be able to get your hands on it more. You're also required to typically maintain it to a degree. So there's some sweat equity that goes into that as well. Um, and that's you know, usually a good starting point for a lot of investors who are thinking about investing in real estate. But in our world and where I fit in the general space of it in MLG Capital is kind of the, a passive investing approach, a passive way to invest in private real estate. So what we do is not publicly traded. And in the private side, there's also a couple different avenues. You can invest in individual syndications, which is more or less being a, a stock picker over the mutual fund. You're investing in maybe one deal at a time, one asset at a time. 
MLG used to operate that way for the first 25 years or so from about 1987 until 2012. But around 2012, we switched to doing more of a diversified fund approach. So nowadays we are investing in usually about 25 to 30 different assets per fund, trying to get more of a mutual fund approach than the stock picker approach where your risk is spread across a a variety of different assets that are invested all across the country and in a variety of different asset classes as well. And we like that because it fits well for kind of the average high net worth investor who's looking to access a private investment, have lower volatility, but also have some more diversification than you could if you are investing in your own property, one asset in one location, or in just an individual syndication deal that could also be just one asset in one location. Yeah, I'm trying to, I was I was thinking of like using my hand to kind of go from the bottom to the top in terms of maybe you start with your own, let me buy a duplex kind of deal. It's not like one's better than the other. It's almost more the opposite where you've got a high degree of involvement and kind of maybe less and less degree of involvement on there. I'm just thinking through of, you know, if you personally buy your own property and I, I've got some clients, I talk to people all the time where they say, Hey, this is a great deal. I'm going to buy apartment building, a fourplex, a duplex, even their old single family home, whatever it is, and look at the returns on it. Well, those those are returns there if you are valuing your own sweat equity, like you said, at basically zero. <laughs> yeah, I'm making you know 20% a year. Well, yeah, if you paid yourself something, you know, even minimum wage, the you know, those returns aren't aren't necessarily there. So kind of thinking of how you get maybe less involved. So you might have you have your own duplex, you take care of everything on your own. Mm-hmm. Then maybe you hire a property manager would be another like kind of a next level of passivity. <laughs> so less involvement, more right. more passive uh, than those private syndications. It's like you and your buddies maybe get together and you buy one property and then probably have a property manager that does it. And right. then next is the private deals that are more of purchasing into a fund that has 20 or 25 or 30 investments. And then of course there's the publicly traded ones. So it's it's less and less level investments because it's of course, if you're buying a private real estate, you still need to really do your own d- due diligence on this is the manager, this is the fee structure I'm willing to, to invest with. Right. On there. Yeah. To that last point, there's a kind of a big difference between public investing versus private investing. And I think one of the biggest pieces of that is accessibility to information. In the public markets, everybody's working off of the same information. You know, Publicly traded companies or entities are required to publish the same information so everyone is working the same. In the private markets, that's not necessarily the case. It's actually not often the case. There's a lot of different ways different managers can report their quarterly statements to investors if if they do that. You know, some smaller private deals might not have a lot in terms of knowing where your you know, money's being held or uh, what distributions are coming your way. You know, we obviously publish quite a bit of information. We're very transparent in how we do it, but there's just a big disparity between uh, what information you might have from the manager to actively review or evaluate the opportunity. If you're going to look at an individual property, you also might have to look at how to underwrite or value real estate and determine, is this assumption that this manager is telling me they can grow rents by 
X percent over the next five years. Is that real? How do I know that? Um, what kinds of information can I use to verify whether that's true or not? That information can be hard to come by in the private market. So that's a big difference between kind of public and private. Yeah. You also use this word passive. So many people are looking for passive income. And it's interesting because a lot of times when you delve into one something that's supposedly passive, there's a lot of extra work that goes into it. And it sounds like even though you're not actually picking the stocks and bonds, you're not picking the actual apartment building, whatever it might be, there's still a little bit of level of work that someone needs to do if they're investing in private real estate. Yeah, that's right. You know, there's sweat equity that goes into direct ownership. You know, you might get calls at, at 3 a.m. that something's broken or, you know, you got to work through assigning new tenants to, to leases and all sorts of different maintenance requests and extra costs that can be unforeseen that are entirely upon you if you own the property. I mean, if you're passively invested in a fund such as ours, there's really no obligation other than um, receiving quarterly distributions, catching up on, you know, how the fund is going, keeping updated. We're not requiring any investors to spend more time uh, to do anything to the fund. It's truly passive. Yeah. And what, what you also said is different sectors, different locations. Because I'm thinking if you go out and buy a duplex, you probably buy the duplex down the street. And if you are part of a local syndication, you and a few friends buy a couple different deals together, it's probably still on your relatively general area. What's the advantage? Why would you bother, I guess, diversifying across different states uh, or different categories? Let's start with like the location part first. Great question. Yeah, real estate's all about location. As right. most location, people know, location, right? location, right? <laughs> right. That's the, one of the biggest drivers of demand for investment in real estate. And when you think about, hey, I'm going to go buy a duplex, you're right. It's usually something that you are familiar with. You know which neighborhoods might be more preferable to invest in. Um, you might know or at least have access to those types of opportunities through someone you know who might be selling something. It's it's typically a pretty local game. And there's some advantages to getting diversified outside of that. You know, We're sitting here in, in greater Milwaukee area. I've lived here most of my life. Love it. A lot of great things going on in Milwaukee, but it doesn't have the same maybe job or population growth that are key drivers to success in, let's say, apartment or multifamily investing than some other large growth markets um, where there might be really significant influxes of new jobs, new population growth. And there's just a lot happening that can really benefit a multifamily investor. It's also important to stay diversified when you think about if the market takes a turn, if you know the Milwaukee market might get impacted in the next recession differently than you know another market where we invest pretty heavily in like Dallas, Texas, there could be a big difference between the two of those. And so diversification geographically is pretty important um, when you think about it that way. Yeah. And typically you get started out with the single family, the apartment building, maybe, you know, fourplex, eight units, things like that. These are all you're renting to people. And that's a good thing. Everyone's got to live somewhere. But another thing you, I guess, maybe preach is not the right word, but you you emphasize is diversifying amongst different categories. What other categories besides renting to other people, besides the apartment uh, market uh, are there? Yeah. What we try and do in our funds is maintain diversification by asset type as well. We're very heavy in multifamily apartments. That's usually 80 plus percent of what we're doing. And lately it's been trending pretty high. Um, we also try to diversify into asset classes like industrial. 
We'll also on occasion do retail or office investments. And so those are kind of the main four asset classes. There are certainly others. And we don't spend too much time in, in other asset classes. But if the office market is really challenged in you know time like COVID, you're going to want to have some allocation to other asset classes within private real estate. So you don't have maybe all your eggs in one basket from an asset class perspective. Same thing like if you were going to have all your investments in Metro Milwaukee, you could be overexposed. It's kind of the same concept as you don't want to be you know, 90% allocated to tech stocks in 2022. That could be bad news. Same concept applies in, in private real estate to diversify in different asset classes and, and geographies. Yeah, and you're seeing a lot of growth. We're in the Wisconsin area. There's a lot of growth in these big warehouses. I'm just not personally probably going to go out and build a million dollar where a million, not, that'd be nice to build a million dollar warehouse, million square foot warehouse for Amazon or a place like that. Yet a big fund probably could do it. And even then you're, you're renting to one place. And so having a fund that maybe has five or 10 of those to different tenants is probably a smart way to go. Yeah. And if you sign, if you, if you own a single tenant industrial building, you're cash flow is really dependent on that one tenant. And so the valuation of that industrial property also decreases every year that the uh, lease is coming up to renewal. So if it's a a 10-year lease, you get to year nine, year eight, every year your value of your industrial asset is decreasing just because you're getting closer to that lease expiration. And then come lease renewal time, that can be a big factor. So you're kind of concentrated on really one tenant in that situation. And so it makes sense to really diversify. And one of the things we also do with an industrial is we're pretty rarely buying like a single tenant industrial property. We're typically looking for multi-tenant industrial properties to not have all of our investment concentration on you know one company that might be leasing with us. Yeah. So far it's sounding great, right? The idea that's diversification, uh, you've got some tax efficiency that comes along mm-hmm. uh, with real estate. Yeah, there's got to be uh, maybe I don't catches in the right word, right? But what are the I don't know the the minimums? What are the different kind of things? This is a different level of investment than going. You can go buy a share. You can buy a partial share of a stock for like five bucks, right? right? There's it's so easy to do that. This is a different level, different ball game. For a lot of people, what do you need to know if you want to get started in investing in private real estate? Great question. So private investments such as ours are available to what's called accredited investors. And it's an SEC regulation on funds like ours. It's not necessarily our rules, but those it's it's an income or net worth threshold that um, investors need to meet in order to have access to these types of opportunities. So the, it's an either-or equation. Either an investor has a million-dollar net worth, excluding their primary residence, or $200,000 in income for the prior two taxable years. And those laws were put into place in actually the 80s, and the numbers haven't changed since. So it is easier today to be an accredited investor than prior. But yeah, that, that's the requirement that investors need to meet to have access to private funds such as ours. Yeah, and kind of the theory is private type of a company, private type of a deal is maybe more sophisticated. So theoretically, if you've got a million dollars or 200 grand of income, you've dealt with these types of, kind of dollar amounts and situations before, or even just then too, right? If it takes 100,000 to invest in a particular deal and you only have 100,000, that's right. probably not the best way to go. 
Yeah, the, the laws were set up to protect investors from yeah. you know investments that the SEC could deem as potentially more risky. You know, not as much access to information. People might not always know what they're investing in if they're not doing proper due diligence. And you're right. If someone has a hundred thousand to invest and their net worth is just not too much over that, that's that's a lot of risk. And yeah, that's a protection for investors from from the SEC. It's Jeremy Kyle here, and I know you're listening to the Retirement Reveal Podcast because you want to learn more about making great retirement decisions. I've created a free video course for you to do just that. Head over to 5stepretirementplan.com and sign up to receive this video training right in your email inbox. We broke down our 5-step retirement plan into bite-sized videos so you can get started on the retirement, investment, and tax planning you need to create a consistent retirement income. Go to 5stepretirementplan.com Use the number or spell it out. You'll get there either way. Fivestepretirementplan.com. Thanks for listening. And now for the rest of the show. Yeah. And I mentioned 100,000 just as a round number, but there are minimums. You've got to invest a certain dollar amount. What's a typical minimum for investing in private real estate? Yeah. There's a a broad range for our funds in particular. The minimum is 50,000, which for the average accredited investor is, is pretty attainable for a portion of their investment holdings. Our average investor is probably somewhere in the $250,000 range. Um, and there's also a, a wide range of, of levels within our clientele. But you know, minimums tend to be kind of in that range. You could see some for 25, some for 50, some maybe for 100 or more. Accessibility is a pretty big factor for you know, this audience to be thinking about because some institutional managers might have million or $5 million minimums, which are usually only available to other institutional investors or RIAs or registered investment advisors that have access to some of those opportunities. And lately, there's been a a large trend of just more accessibility to private real estate investments. Um, Some of the laws actually changed about a decade ago that allowed for private funds like ours to more actively market ourselves or present our offerings to the general public prior, you and I would have to have an existing relationship. We would have to know each other before we could then talk about some of the deals we might be doing. And again, about 10 years ago, those laws changed that make it more accessible to the average investor who might want to get started in something like what what we're doing. Yeah. If it's more accessible, more people are running across it, but there's some different terminology. Uh, I'm going to run through a couple of them. Just tell me what, sure. uh, what it means. So there's a terminology around preferred return. What is a preferred return? Sure. It it comes down to sometimes the actual definition in the offering documents. For us, what it means is investors get a preference or priority in distributions until they've achieved an 8% rate of return. It's not necessarily our fund is going to be cash flowing at 8% all the time. Um, We're only able to make distributions based off of what our assets produce. But what it represents is investors get priority up to an 8% rate of return. And if we're, say, making a 5% distribution in a given quarter, um, that 3% difference actually accrues. And so cumulatively, we owe investors 8%. So we will need to get caught up on that over time before we get to kind of the next stage in our return structure. So that's just one of the ways where we prioritize or put investors first in how we make distributions. Yeah. And there's another uh, term I came across, uh, return of capital. What does that mean when it comes to real estate? Yeah. So say someone invests, you know, round number, $100,000 with us. 
typically what happens is we'll get that invested in the fund. We'll build our portfolio. And then usually about maybe year three or four of a fund, we'll start to see one out of the 30 deals we might own in a fund sell. If it's a shorter term hold, you know, usually we're holding assets for five to seven years or so, depending. Some could be shorter, some could be a little longer. But on the fund level, year three or four rolls around, we're making a distribution from that. And we might send a portion of that 100000 back to you as a return of your original capital. So say we send 10% of it back to you, your remaining investment with us is 90000 And any preferred return payments that are being made are based off of that 90000 that's remaining. Yeah. I see that oftentimes this return of capital with a non-traded real estate investment mm-hmm. trust. Uh, yeah. what, what would be the difference between a non-traded real estate investment trust or non-traded REIT compared to maybe a private real estate fund? Yeah. Great question. I think the most of that comes down to some of the actual tax considerations, which is kind of a whole conversation on its own. But there are private non-traded REITs, which you know pretty similar. They're not publicly traded, so they're not as volatile and might have a similar preferred return, return of capital type of structure as us. So not not too uh, dissimilar from private REITs, but some of it comes down to the tax considerations. Yeah, gotcha. Now, another thing that I came across is this idea of a catch-up clause, right? And we're not talking about like French fries and stuff. Like what, what is a catch-up clause? <laughs> right. No, that's that's good. So a catch-up clause is something that we actually don't do in our fund. What it allows for is for the managers to so say an MLG potentially to get their piece of it partway in between. So we might have an 8% pref rate with a catch-up clause. So above a certain amount, we might be able to take a piece of the return generated before investor capital is returned. And that's not something we've done in our funds. There are other funds out there that do that. And it's one of those things in your due diligence that you might want to you know, pay attention to or ask the manager about and say, hey, how does this work? And really understand a lot of the fees. Because sometimes there can be different definitions that a manager might use that could be different than what we use. And evaluating all of those components of how investors are prioritized is really important. Yeah. And you mentioned the tax efficiency. Why is that important? What's like, what's uh, a lot of people invest in real estate and they mentioned taxes. What does that do? How does real estate get this tax efficiency advantage? Yeah. Great question. It's, it's a big selling point for some of the stuff that we're doing because real estate by its nature is a tax efficient asset class. And the reason for that is some of the laws that exist for purchase price allocation or accelerated depreciation. What that means is the average multifamily asset has a 27 and a half year depreciation life. So we're going to buy a multifamily property. We're not going to hold it for 27 and a half years to do a straight line depreciation over that amount of time. We're going to take our purchase price and allocate it to other components of that property that might have a shorter depreciation life. Appliances, for example, have a five-year depreciation life. So we're able to accelerate some depreciation up front and actually pass that through to investors. I talked about kind of the difference between a non-traded REIT versus our fund. Our fund is structured as a pass-through LLC, which means all of that accelerated depreciation that's being generated early in our fund flows through to investors. In a non-traded REIT, a REIT is not a pass-through entity. So investors don't stand to benefit from some of those accelerated depreciation benefits. So 
that's one of the the big advantages to what we're doing. And what that looks like to an investor is, say they make a hundred thousand dollar investment, we're typically cash flowing somewhere in the right now somewhere in the three to five percent range in the first year or so of a fund. Obviously, the goal is to grow that over time, but in your first year within a fund, we're putting cash in investors' pocket, but typically come tax time, they're getting a taxable loss or a net rental loss on their K-1s because of some of those accelerated depreciation benefits. And those can be used to offset other sources of passive income, not typically W-2 wages, but if they can't be used in a given year, they can be carried forward into the future to offset future gains we might be having within our fund. So if we get down the line and we're selling assets, hopefully for uh, if we're doing our jobs well, more than we paid for them, we're likely going to trigger capital gains. But some of those losses from prior years can be used to offset that. It's interesting, this whole concept of depreciation, uh, just the thought is that anything you buy is worth something and then over time it's worth less. Uh, and somehow that applies to real estate buildings, which I somewhat understand. Like You do have to keep up real estate buildings and the apartment that was built in 1955 probably isn't as useful as a apartment that was built in 2015, right? So it's, that's right. somewhat understandable, but that's what the tax laws come through, this idea of, of depreciating that. No, no, You put money into this building, into this thing, whatever it is, and because you paid, you know, that's a hundred grand, we're going to keep using that example, because sure. you paid a hundred grand today for a building, you're not going to deduct a hundred grand today as like a business expense because you do have an asset, but right. it just kind of let's recognize it over its whole kind of useful life in a way so that maybe, you know, four grand a year kind of counts against because of loss. Because any normal business, right? I buy a, a a piece of paper, I buy something, I buy some marketing, mm-hmm. right? That's a that's a loss. That's a, a negative. You don't have to pay taxes on your cost of doing business. So it's kind of this way to spreading out your cost of doing real estate business over time. And what you talked about, I think is something called cost segregation. So maybe if you could just you know summarize it, what is cost segregation when it comes to real estate? Right, right. So cost segregation is what I was mentioning earlier, where you're at, you know, taking your purchase price of an asset and allocating it to other components of the property, like the parking lot, the you know, appliances, other other things that are part of the overall property. And one of our strategies is also to go in and do what's called kind of a value add or maybe some sort of renovation to an older property to bring it up to newer standards. If you're doing that, you're also sometimes able to expense some items in full right away if you know you're going to be doing some sort of renovation project. So it's really taking that purchase price and allocating it to components that have shorter depreciation lives. And you're doing it uh, properly. It's just saying it's kind of easier just to spread everything out over 27.5 years, which is the cost of a building. Yeah. Uh, but if you take the time, you can find ways to accelerate, right? To accept those losses on your tax return earlier. And it's interesting too, I, I get people on both sides when I talk to them. One side of it, they almost feel like this depreciation is just this made up magical thing. That's just the way that rich people come out ahead in their taxes. And there is a use to depreciation. It's just recognizing as properly as you can, the purchase price of a thing, kind of the expense of it in the business. So there's a, a positive there. Another other side people get to is they almost think that, well, this will this is this free thing that lasts forever. And then all of a sudden they realize that when you sell 
a property, you have to recognize all those gains. That depreciation actually kind of is just deferring things. It just kind of brings down your purchase price because you've already thrown it against your income as a as a loss. So a lot of people kind of get to the opposite where they're all of a sudden surprised when, wait a second, I I had to pay gains on my property. And almost a lot of it has to do with the depreciation they've already kind of claimed for themselves. And now they have to, you know, pay the tax man, right? Right. And, you know, I'm not a personal CPA, so I don't advise people on their taxes, but we have a very talented tax team that works really heavily with our fund to maximize the amount of efficiency. We've got, I think about nine CPAs on staff that, and, you know, a lot of our leadership team are CPAs that focus on some of that, which is a really big advantage to real estate investing. So we pass that all through to our clients as well. That's good. And I appreciate you talking about cost segregation. We've got a good number of people that have joined our podcast from the Bigger Pockets mm. podcast. So they they will definitely appreciate the uh, cost segregation talk for sure. Good, good. Good. Well, Steve, you've definitely helped us learn a lot about real estate. I've got a final question for you. Sure. Uh, but before we get to that, tell us how do people reach out to you? How do they learn more about MLG Capital? Yeah, absolutely. Feel free to, to reach out to myself or anyone else on our team. We've got a handful of folks who work with investors. Our website's a really great resource, mlgcapital.com. Feel free to head over there and explore kind of what offerings we have available. We offer some of the tax efficiency stuff like I talked about, but we also offer a way for investors to participate with their retirement accounts. So they can use like a self-directed IRA to invest in our funds. You'll find more information like that on our website and a whole bunch of other materials. So that'll be a great place to go. But our team's available if anybody wants to talk. Yeah, we're big on education, talking about different parts of retirement investing. That's how we got connected as I came across the MLG Capital website and was learning a lot about real estate. I thought I knew a good amount, but hey, it doesn't hurt to learn even more. And so that was definitely a good good resource for people there. Great. Yeah. We try and do as much as we can. A lot of it's educational. We want to make sure people understand what they're investing in and be transparent. One of our guiding principles is absolute integrity. It's painted on our walls in our office that we want to make sure we're taking care of people as best we can. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Well, final question for you, Steve, tell us something about yourself that few people know about. And remember this podcast is rated, rated clean. <laughs> sure. Sure. That's a good question. You know, I, uh, I, that's a big question. No, open-ended question. Hard it. to know where to take that. But, uh, but I, I'm, I, I like to spend a lot of time, uh, you know, I'm an athletic person. I did, you know, cross country and track in college. So I really like to do anything in the outdoors and also stay active as much as I possibly can. So that's maybe something about me that people should know. So when you're not dealing with real estate, you get as far away from buildings and <laughs> the world as possible. Right? Yeah. I love to travel, love yeah. to you know get out, but obviously passionate about what we do as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's good. Well, thanks for coming on, Steve. It's been a blast learning about how to invest in private real estate uh, from you guys. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Yeah. Good. And thank you for listening to the Retirement Reveal podcast. We believe if you know more about your money, you'll feel better about your money and you will make better money decisions. This was another great episode of the Retirement Revealed podcast. Click on the subscribe button below to automatically get our latest episodes. If you liked our show and want even more, please give us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. Please go to retirement-revealed.com to learn more and send us your questions and feedback. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Kyle Financial Partners, Thrivent, or its affiliates. The guests are not affiliated with or endorsed by Thrivent Advisor Network. 
Kyle Financial Partners does not provide legal accounting or tax advice. Consult your attorney or tax professional. Representatives have general knowledge of the Social Security tenants. For details on your situation, contact the Social Security Administration. Kyle Financial Partners is part of the Thrivent Advisor Network, a registered investment advisor. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investment advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have with your investment planning.